0: Abbot Jerome Codell of Suviaco Abbey in Arkansas is one of the founders of Little Rock Scripture Study. He recently wrote a very helpful article in the Abbey Message titled, Dominance of the Foreground. He talked about how modern technology allows us to learn of tragedies, violence, and other troubling events within minutes. These quickly grab our attention and become the foreground of our awareness. We're disturbed by the foreground images, most of them of events we cannot control, and that's not where we need to dwell. We can choose to pay attention instead to the background. As Catholics, that background is formed by God's word in the scriptures, our faith traditions, teachings of the church, our creed, those things that we continue to learn more and more about our whole lives. Abbot Jerome explains that it is in this background that we find the strength to know how much attention to give to the fears and threats that bombard us in the foreground. I happened to read the article while I was working on this lecture, and even though this is not really what Abbot Jerome had in mind in his excellent article, I started thinking about distractions that sometimes claim the foreground of our awareness at Mass. Imagine these thoughts running through someone's mind before and during mass. Uh-oh. Who is that in our pew? We always sit there. They ought to know we always sit there. <sighs> Not in here. It's August. It's Arkansas. You'd think they'd bypass those automatic thermostat settings. Wish I had a fan. If they still put the bulletins out early like they used to, I could use one of those. Hmm. Not too many people here today. Wonder why. Maybe we'll get out early. Oh, no. I see someone up there in the front pew going over her index cards. That means she's going to speak after communion. We won't be getting out early after all, and it is so hot in here. Maybe, every now and then, you have let yourself be distracted by such thoughts. This study is going to help us strengthen our background understanding of the Eucharist so that we don't get sidetracked by the foreground. As an adult, I've been privileged to learn so much about the Eucharist that has inspired me. Some of it left me truly with a sense of awe. My belief in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist has been strengthened, yes. But so have my faith in the scriptures as the word of God, my belief in Jesus as God's son, and my conviction that I am obligated to live out the Eucharist in my life. To begin this study of the Christian Eucharist as feast, we turn first to Old Testament stories of hospitality and of meals, both ordinary meals and symbolic rituals. We start with the Old Testament because Jesus himself read, prayed, and lived by the prescriptions of the Old Testament priests and shared the hopes of the Old Testament prophets. And because Jesus, like all faithful Jews, believed in the promise of a Messiah, a redeeming presence of God. As your commentary says, it would be foolish to ignore how biblical texts of earlier eras helped form and fashion later believers' understanding of their faith. In the Genesis chapter 18 story of the three men who visit Abraham and Sarah, we explore an Old Testament meal that really initiated the story of our salvation. Up until those three mysterious strangers approached Abraham's tent in a place near Hebron, humanity had mostly failed God, refusing to live in a way that might please God. But what about God's part? Remember that both God and people have responsibilities in any covenant they make together. Where were the descendants God had promised Abraham? At the age of almost a hundred, he has none. Which of the strangers is God? Is God guest number one, guest number two, or guest number three? Neither we nor Abraham have any way of knowing, at least at first. Abraham welcomes the strangers, giving them water and a place to rest out of the sun. He puts together a plentiful mouth-watering meal, which he serves to them himself. A wonderful visual image is formed as we read this story. The funny part is how Abraham goes about it with such gusto. Quick! He barks to his wife Sarah to fix cakes, a lot of cakes. Then he rushes out to choose the lamb and give more orders. Even with our modern kitchens and appliances, we could never fix a lavish meal like this as fast as Abraham seems to have done it. He doesn't know he is entertaining God, but he clearly wants to please. It's part of the culture of his time. In verses 9 to 15, things slow down, and the attention shifts to one of the strangers and the promise he announces. Abraham has stopped rushing around, and Sarah is quiet because she's eavesdropping from the tent. The stranger, whom we now know is the Lord, makes a wild promise to Abraham. Neither he nor Sarah accepts this birth announcement like we think a model of faith should. They resist believing God, and Sarah treats the message like a joke and laughs. Neither of them is ready to accept the promise or to believe that God is, after all, God, and is not limited to their expectations. In one of her sonnets from the Portuguese, Elizabeth Barrett Browning wrote that God's gifts put man's best dreams to shame. I often limit God to outcomes that I can imagine, too. But God asks me and you, just like he asked Sarah and Abraham, is anything too marvelous for the Lord to do? I want and need to answer, no, of course not. Bible scholar Walter Brueggemann says that this story shows how difficult faith is because faith calls us to believe promises that are beyond our expectations and even beyond all evidence. From the book of Exodus, we next consider the familiar and dramatic description of Passover. Catholics hear this beautiful reading at the Holy Thursday Liturgy. Again, in the context of a meal, God makes a promise to Israel, this time the incredible promise of freedom from slavery in Egypt. Before he gives a historical record of the Exodus, the biblical narrator gives instructions on how future generations are to celebrate a ritual of Passover. The foods, the preparation, the posture, the clothing, the attitude, all are carefully described. So this passage recorded hundreds of years after the actual Exodus event is both historical and catechetical written for the sake of Jews who even today obediently observe this ritual meal each spring. The ritual began with the sacrifice of the lamb in the temple in Jerusalem, followed by the meal at the family table. The Passover for Jews is more than a remembrance. Jewish tradition sees the Passover sacrifice and the Passover meal as making everyone who later celebrates it spiritual participants in the first Passover night, no matter how many centuries have passed. God's original act of deliverance is somehow made present through the Passover liturgy. In this way, every Hebrew generation connects back to the Exodus, the fundamental event of their salvation. We could say that the sacrifice of the Passover lamb understood as a substitute for the people, expresses Israel's complete dependence on God. It was Israel's way of putting herself entirely into the hands of God and risking this nighttime flight that surely seemed impossible to them. I doubt that I could dare to begin a journey out of Egypt like Israel did. I know that it's hard for me to put myself into the hands of God, Bible scholar Father Demetrius Dumb has written about God's ways as mystery. Human beings don't much like or trust mystery. Father Dum says that God's gifts are sometimes so hard to recognize because God wraps them in thick mystery. Maybe to be able to entrust our lives to God, hampered as we are with only human understanding, we just need to say to ourselves, it's a mystery to me and keep on trying. As a child I was taught that I would never be able to understand some of our Catholic doctrine because they are mysteries. The Passover narrative gives me though a much richer understanding of the Eucharist as a sacrifice and communion as a way to take into myself the body of Christ as a nourishment for life. The Eucharist is the all-important Christian family meal celebrated around the Lord's table, much like the Passover ritual is for Jews. Like the Passover, the Eucharist recalls a past act of redemption. It is a present encounter with Jesus risen from the dead, and it looks forward to his coming again. Mysterious? Yes. And, as Vatican II taught us, the source and summit of our Christian life. The third feast we consider comes from the 25th chapter of Isaiah. Again, lavish food is provided, and again, God makes promises that go way beyond what people would expect, believe, or imagine. Your commentary calls Isaiah's prophecy mind-boggling. Isaiah is writing this at a time when the Israelites are the victims, as they have often been, of bloody takeovers by more powerful nations. Many people are starving, many are dying, and most are surely losing heart. Against this dismal reality, Isaiah says God will intercede on Jerusalem's Mount Zion with a feast of the most delectable, costly foods and the best wines there are, plenty to provide for all peoples. In short, this is a vision of the long-awaited kingdom of God. We're told there will be guests there from every nation and all peoples. We know that feasting on rich food and fine wine symbolizes the fullness of life that God wants for his people. The kingdom of God is often symbolized by a feast. When this particular reading is heard at Sunday Mass, it is paired with Matthew's gospel of the wedding banquet. The invited guests reject the invitation to the banquet, but outsiders who would not normally be invited happily accept. They are the poor and the outcasts, maybe people in trouble with the law or people without any community standing. And this brings up another reason that this prophecy surely was hard for Israel to believe. The people of Israel had suffered much destruction and heartache throughout their long history. While many may have claimed that God had abandoned them and his part of the covenant, the more honest among them surely had to admit that part of the problem was theirs. They had listened to false prophets along the way who told them what they wanted to hear. They had rejected prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah who begged them to trust God and to admit their own sins of oppression and injustice against the poor. But even despite all their failures, God is once again inviting them back. As we move to verse 7 of this passage, the God who offers the bountiful feast does even more. Isaiah seems to imagine a veil of death covering the earth. And death here is more than physical death. It is a negative force that counters and prevents well-being. The world can't seem to shake the effects of death and destruction, especially the sadness, loss, and mourning that go along with it. But now, as Walter Brueggemann puts it, the Lord of life plans to terminate that mood and destroy the very force of death. Some people are able to grasp this promise in life. My husband called a dear friend who was close to death. When he asked her how she was feeling, she said, terrible, but I've never been happier. And then in verse 8, we see one of the most tender, most human images of God I can imagine, and that is the image of God wiping the tears from our eyes. We can assume, too, that there will be no more reason for heartache and tears in this depiction of the kingdom of God. Father John Foley wrote a beautiful and moving song based on our next scripture passage from chapter 55 of Isaiah. The song is called, Come to the Water. While Isaiah 55, verse 1, simply reads, All you who are thirsty, come to the water. Foley identifies specifically who those thirsty people might be. Here are some of his words. Let all who thirst, all who have nothing, all who seek, come to the water. Let all who toil, all who are weary, all who labor without rest, let them come to the Lord. Bring all the poor, the children without might, without price, come to the Lord. The verses of Isaiah 55 that we study today are offered as the Old Testament reading three different times in the church's liturgical cycle. It is one of the suggested readings for the Easter Vigil Mass. It is read on the Feast of the Baptism of the Lord and it is read during Cycle A on the 18th Sunday of Ordinary Time, along with the Gospel of the Loaves and Fishes. In Isaiah's words, in the miracle of the loaves and fishes, and in the song, Come to the Water, there is one common message. The gift of life in God's presence is plentiful, free, and open to all. We can spend our money, our time, our emotional energy on other things in an effort to buy security, but what we buy will not really nourish or satisfy us. In contrast, the grain, wine, and milk of God's love and promises are unbelievably superior and all are free. The only requirement is that we hunger and thirst for God. Now, why would anyone say no to that? Paul Hansen addresses this in his commentary with a blunt but probably accurate explanation. It's called control. The only thing that can exclude us from the banquet is that we would choose to be someplace else. And why would we choose this? Because we want to determine the menu. We want to be in control of who's going to be there. We don't want to appear gullible. No surprises, please. We may be used to thinking that, with pure grit and determination, we can make our lives what we want them to be. This illusion of control makes it hard to accept that God's presence and promises give life its only true meaning, or to accept that God's bill of fare is richer than anything we can imagine, or to believe that it is all free. In these Old Testament scriptures, we've visited religion, tradition, culture, liturgy, prophecy, and history, at least a little bit of each. I hope these snippets have given you more understanding of all that has formed our Eucharistic celebration today. This is indispensable background. Perhaps it will keep at bay all those disturbing little distractions we talked about earlier. Those things that aren't important, but come to the foreground so easily anyway. Also in the background is the meaning of the word Eucharist, which is from the Greek word for Thanksgiving. Eons after Abraham and Sarah, after Moses, after Isaiah, and 2,000 plus years after Jesus, we come together to joyfully thank God, for his marvelous, stunning deeds. Those of the ancient past, those given through Jesus, and those continued in his church through us today. God renews his promises in this meal, in the body and blood of Jesus. Let's concentrate on that background each time we celebrate the Eucharist. And certainly as we go out into the world from that celebration.